In the following live session recording, Dwayne McCrary, project team leader with Lifeway Christian Resources, talks about building a disciple-making Bible study ministry. Looking at how others build disciples in the past can give us insights into how we can build disciples today. During this session, Sunday School Directors will review some of the personal notes of the first person to ever carry the title of Lifeway's Director of Sunday School, Arthur Flake, and identify principles we can utilize today. Let's join Dwayne now. Um, I appreciate y'all allowing me to be here with y'all today. I, I mentioned our, my grandchildren. I got a picture from uh, my daughter today. My, my granddaughter has learned to walk. And so my, my, uh, my, great, my daughter sent me a picture of my granddaughter walking. And she's walking with one hand in the air. And the other hand, she's got a piece of bacon. <laughs> and she's got a big up, she's smiling like this, holding up the bacon. And I'm thinking, she's my granddaughter. <laughs> but... Anyhow, here's what we're going to be doing during this time today. We're going to be looking at the notes of Arthur Flake that were they were written uh, in 1920, so almost 100 years old. Okay, um, well, I'll tell you more about Flake later on, but I'll give you a quick synopsis. Lifeway used to be called the Badger Sunday School Board. That name was changed in the 90s, 1990s. Um, in 1920, Arthur Flake was named as director of Sunday School for Lifeway, Baptist Sunday School Board. He was the first person to carry that title. He was the first person to carry the title of director of Sunday School. And his job responsibility was basically to be a missionary for Sunday School. What does it look like? What should it be doing? What shouldn't it be doing? What should it focus on? What should it not focus on? And he was creating a standard. It was called a standard. But what it was was this list of actions. Were you doing this or were you not? Okay? And it was a the standard was a was aspirational. It was something that churches were striving to, but very few of them actually accomplished it. The hardest thing on the standard was meeting the requirement for vacation Bible school. Because vacation Bible school began as a subset of Sunday school. And this is the standard, the original standard for if you were recognized this way as a church that met the Sunday school standards, is that you had it, you enrolled in vacation Bible school your average Sunday school attendance. So if your Sunday school uh, averaged 400 in Sunday school, then during vacation Bible school you met the standard if you enrolled 400 in vacation Bible school. That was the hardest standard to reach. Okay, in what he had, eventually. It wasn't in his original piece. Um, in the front, uh, at Lifeway, when you walk into our new building, there's this, there's display, there's three crates, three things, displays, and in one of those displays sits this book with these notes on it. Like I said, Doc, uh, uh, Arthur Flake created these notes. One day, I was walking by that display and noticed the page had been turned. Which makes me wonder, who turned that page? When did they turn that page? When are they going to turn it again? And if they do, could I be there with them? Because what else is in this book? What else is there? Because what the page that got turned was a page I'd never seen before. Because I walked by that display every day. Okay? 
every day. So I seen this book, this page, and I thought, I've never seen that page before. What else is in there that 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 I don't know about? Are there grocery lists? You know, I'd like to. What did he buy? What do you like? I mean, I would like to know. I keep a journal, and in my will, it says what happens to that journal. Nothing happens to it for six months. Nobody's to touch it because it's got names in it. And I'd like to enjoy, like to think the idea that, that there'll be people enjoying and celebrating my life until they read that. <laughs> so I want them to have at least six months of time. There was a pastor in Dallas named Bruce McKeever, and he uh, printed a book um, about his experiences as a pastor, and he put names of people in it. And it was printed nine months after his death, and that was the rule. Okay? So it, he finally got to say what he'd always wanted to say, but he was dead when he said it. But journals fascinate me because of that. What are their thoughts? How did they get to that point? So we found out when that would be, and a team of us had access to the book for eight hours of time. We took archive photos, which means we were in a studio, and you're going to note it. You'll see it once we get to some of these pages. Um, you'll see pieces of metal holding the page in place so that we could take the photo because these haven't been photoshopped yet. They'll be cleaned out in time when these get, get used for some other things. But we took a photo of every page that had notes in it. And then we made that available so we could study it. So then that happened last August, a year ago now. And then me and some other folks started pouring over these notes to see what we could learn. Okay. And so what I'm going to be doing is sharing with you these notes. It's not like we went to the Holy Land and took pictures, but you know it's going to feel that way kind of. We're going to look at some of the things Flake said because there's stuff in it that's never been printed, that never got published. And we found several surprises. So we're going to look at those things, and by looking at them, what I think we're going to discover is some discipleship principles that will help us to, in today's world. Okay, And part of the things that he shared in there is why he did it. And none of that got printed, which is important. So, first thing, this is the page everybody points to. This page right here. Because this page is the page that des described how to grow a Sunday school ministry. This page does. It's got find out who should belong, assort, grade, and tabulate, enlarge the organization, and then grade the Sunday school and then go after them. Five steps. This is, known, this is the first rendition of what's known as Flake's formula. Okay? This page, this happened in 1920. You begin to see Sunday School, Southern Baptist Sunday School, grow from 20, 30, 40, 50, all the way to 60, and then to the 70s. 50 years of time, and it's all based on these two pages. Okay? Everything done for 50 years are based on what Flake wrote on these two pages in Southern Baptist Life. So you need to realize the significance of this page. Okay, this, this defined everything done in Southern Baptist Sunday schools for 50 years. So we're going to take a look at what he's done here. Now one of the good things I've got, I've got access to is these notes here became a book. And this is my copy, and no, you may not have it. <laughs> it became a book in 1922. And this is that book. So you can compare what he wrote 
and what ended up in print, which is kind of fun to do as an editor. Because then you can see where what happened. Now, one of the things I need to tell you, I went the wrong way, is that the, this book is not really a journal. We were surprised. I'd always been told it was a journal. It's not a journal. What it was is the convention um, training manual. The normal training manual is what it was called. A normal was what they used to call schools for teachers. It's a normal school. It's what they call it. For, there's still some schools that carry that title, but that's what it was. And so this book was the was uh, first published in 1909, um, and then it was reprinted in 13, 1913. And that's what this is. And it was designed to train all your Sunday school leaders. It's interesting what's in there. Here's the outline of the book. First of all, it's, a Sunday, it's about the Sunday school, a section about Sunday school. It gives you all kinds of principles, things you need to do to administer and lead Sunday school. Then there was a section about the pupil. And what the pupil section was was how to teach people. What are their needs? And it was you had stuff in there about teaching preschoolers students. That was kind of fun to read because it's very different than how we might think about it today. Then the last section was the Bible. And it's basically an overview of the Old Testament and New Testament. The idea behind this book was that every Bible study leader in the church would have read this book and studied it as a group. So everybody, everybody in Sunday school would understand the administrative parts, they would understand how to teach somebody, and they would have this deep, this, this overview of Scripture. This was the first thing that was done for all teachers. That's the design behind this book. In between each one of these sections were blank pages. Twelve pages to be exact. On those blank pages is where Flake wrote his notes. So what he would do would be much like what we might do with a book. We would read a book, read a section, then there's blank pages. He would write his notes on those blank pages as to what he just read, then move to the next chapter. So these notes are in response to what he was reading by on here. Here's the interesting thing. He's responding to comments made by B.W. Spielman, and some of it he disagreed with him. It's his boss. Direct supervisor. And there's places in here where he said that's not true. And, he, and here we are looking at it where he's disagreeing with his boss and we know it. So it's kind of interesting. But this page, these five things, this is a summary of what he wrote in his notes. Find out who should belong, assort, grade, and tabulate, enlarge the organization, grade the school, and then go after it. And here's what he meant by that. Find out who's not there. That's what he really meant. Find out who's not there. Here's who's in our groups, but who's not in our groups. Identify those people. He's got a process for doing that. Once you identify them, then you assort that information. By graded, if, if our community has a bunch of 15, 16, 17 year olds who's not in a group, then we need to know that here's who they are and let's group it. We don't just say, oh, there's, there's 40 people in our community that aren't in a group. Instead, there's 40 15 year olds not in a group. Because that changes how you organize stuff. Once you know that, then you can enlarge your organization. Because now you know, I need to get this, this group for this group of people that I don't have. Find somebody to, to lead that group. Get them ready to do it. Then I'm going to annual grading. We would call this promotion. That's what it meant, annual grading. Promotion Sunday, and then go after them. Now, I said you can compare what's in the book with what got printed. These two things, to me, are, seem very similar, and you can see it with what comes up in the book.
Now they worded it. You could tell some editors got a hold of it. Because it goes from find out who should belong to the constituents where the Sunday school should be known. But what they really meant is find out who should belong. Then you have the organization should be enlarged, which is this. This is added. A suitable place should be provided. That's not in Flake's notes. It's not in his notes anywhere. But it's what ended up in the book in 1922. And then a program of visitation should be maintained, which is really go after them. It's really the same thing. Now, classically, folks who have, folks have become to understand this is Flake's formula. Know your possibilities, enlarge the organization, enlist and train workers, provide space and resources, and then go after the people. Okay? These two, this got made into two things. Now, here's what's interesting. If you look at books and ask what's Flake's formula, this is the formula you'll find. We can't find any place where Flake said it. We can't find anything in print where he did this, and we don't know that he said it or not, but he never followed it. Because we do know this became, became used while he was still alive. That makes sense? So he was okay with this. And part of our assumption was he's okay with it because he didn't care about somatics. He just wanted you to have a sense with it was reaching people. So it didn't matter to him how you worded it because it still carries the principles in his content. From here all the way across. Does that make sense? Are y'all with me? Y'all need more coffee? Okay. One of the things that happens when we start looking at this is we begin to see um, all of this is connected. On this next page, you see that a whole page on graded. Because what happened is even though graded went in the formula, there's a whole chapter in the book on graded. It's still there, it's just not here. Um, one of the things he does here is he talks about the difficulties of grading people, of grouping them by whatever group you want to think of. One of the things we need to know when he talks about grading He's not talking about, oh, well, this is, this is this age group. He's talking about regrouping every year. So, like, when it comes time for the new Sunday school year to start, when he means grading, what he means is looking at what you've got and regrouping everybody. Every year you get regrouped. That's what he's talking about. But I want you to look at this section right here because it, it's actually in his notes on another page. It's on this page right here. And it's on the bottom, and I made them larger. <clears throat> this, this page that you see right here in Spillman's work, all it's talking about is things you ought to do to group and grade people, but he never does say these are the difficulties. Flake, on the other hand, says here's the difficulties. And he has four, uh, five of them. They do not understand um, how, what is meant. Not enough teachers. Not enough room. Pupils will leave Sunday school. Many teachers desire to keep their students. Present. Present students. Okay? They want to keep them. I don't have my glasses, so they want to keep their students. Okay? Now remember, this is 1920. Y'all never heard those excuses before him. What's funny is this is what he did in the notes. It's right here. But on those pages after this, where he's organizing everything, he did something very subtle but important. He added quotes to these three. Notice these don't have quotes, but the not enough teachers, not sufficient room, and pupils will lead the Sunday school. Those three things are in quotes, but these are not. In the book, 
he has these excuses classified as two groups. First group is called imagined excuses or imagined difficulties. In other words, these are just excuses and they happen to be these three, these three things here. Is that there's not enough teachers, not sufficient room, and pupils will leave the same school. He said those are not, those are just excuses. Those really aren't true difficulties. You're making up a reason not to do it is what he says in the book. Okay? The real issue to him is number one, you don't understand the value of it. Because here's why it's important for us to understand the value of regrouping. After a while, after about 18 months the, 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 of a group, especially in adults, the relationships are built and they're set. And so if you start adding people, they can't become a part of that group. Part of it is because experiences happen in those 18 months that, that become the rallying point for that group. I teach a group of 50, or I teach two Bible study groups that some of you have already heard me say, so you know this, so forgive me for repeating. I teach two Bible study groups in our church on Sundays. I teach a group of 50-year-olds at 8 o'clock. I go to 9.30 worship, and then at 11 o'clock I teach a group of 3-year-olds. Um, so I do that. I'll do that tomorrow. Um, I do that every Sunday when we have Bible study groups. There's two Sundays we don't have Bible study groups in a year, but the rest of the time I'm doing that if I'm in town. Um, my 50-year, my group of, my 50-year-old group, they're not, they haven't been together that long, although they think they have. Um, when we first started that group, one of the members of that group needed a kidney, uh, a kidney transplant. She had the kidney transplant. The group rallied around her. Suddenly, that group became functionally closed, even though we were inviting other people to it. And the reason it was functionally closed is because they rallied around her for that kidney transplant, and the rest of the folks who come in to the group can't penetrate that experience. Do you follow me? So it makes it hard to join my group. Even though it's open, it makes it hard to join it because of the experience that we went through as a group rallying around that one member. And we needed to. We needed to. I mean, some of the folks in the group even went and got tested to see if they were a match for us. I mean, that's the extreme we went to as a group to help that person. You can't help somebody catch up with that. So our group became functionally closed. If, if our church, and I'm not responsible for it, I've had conversations, if our church regrouped us every year, then we would be able to be open again. Because it's hard, it would be easy for someone to join that group because the experiences would be different. Do you follow that? So that's what he's really talking about here. The second one, real excuse that he points to, is many teachers desire to retain present students. Well, I'm, I teach. I teach a group. I understand when our Minister of Education comes to me and says, Dwayne, uh, who in your group, this is me being honest, I know y'all wouldn't do this. <laughs> who in your group would be a good teacher? Well, who I present to him is the B group. <laughs> and let me tell you why. Because I want the A group to be there for me. Because they're the ones that discuss. They're the ones that if we get stuck, they move us on. If I'm not there, that's who I call on to teach. <clears throat> So I want the A group there. So what I do is I give them the B names. Being honest. And he and I have had this conversation. He knows it. And so then he'll say, well, who's the A groups? Like I'm going to tell him now after I admit that I'm doing that. So I give him the people that are regular, but not quite as regular as the A groups. Because I like teaching a group of folks who are going to interact and who I know are going to be there. Is that, I know 
Y'all never encountered that, have you? Okay? So that's what he's saying. The other thing you have to overcome is adult teachers who want to make sure that if you go after somebody, you go after their big group and not their A group because they want their A group there. They've invested in it. And it helps their class. So there's a selfishness thing you got to come over. Now understand, once again, this is 1920. Do you think things have changed in 100 years? So it's not a lot. It's the same. You still got to deal with these things. These are imagined. All of these can be easily overcome. Not enough teachers, not sufficient room, pupils will leave. This is the one that I find they're going to leave. He's, he says point blank. No, they won't. They may not be there a couple weeks, but they'll come back because they, they need the fellowship with each other. They're not going to leave. That's what he says. Um, we'll talk more about how he knows that in a little bit. So he, he points this out. There's some important principles for that. Number one, we need to understand the value of it ourselves because we don't understand those dynamics sometimes. Number two, we need to realize that when we ask teachers for names, they're giving them their B list. Okay? They just are. Looking for excuses. I started looking for more excuses, and I found this one on that page that is the page everybody points to when they go to this book. Here's the two things he expected opposition over towards this plan for building a Sunday school, reaching more people, is that he expected folks to say, it won't work here, uh, and we tried that. Y'all ever heard those excuses? Yes. Remember, this is 1920. We haven't got any better in our excuses. What's interesting to me is it won't work here. How do you know? Because this was a brand new idea. Nobody presented this before. We tried that. No, you hadn't. Because this was a new idea. But that's what he expected to be, the excuses. That shows his experience. And just being realistic, realistic in expectations. That there are folks who, no matter what you do, they're going to find an excuse. I made a list one time of excuses I've, I've been told about why you couldn't do something in a church. And then I tried classifying them as won't work excuses, or we tried that before excuses. And you know what? I was able to lump all of them into those two categories. Is it won't work here, or we tried that before? I could put almost every excuse I've heard into those two categories. That's important for me to think about if I'm leading a group. Because those are not even, they get back to the real issues I don't want to. Okay? And you see that even in what Flake was encountering. This is one more thing. Um, Spielman said um, that if you have a building that's already grouped and built a certain way, it's easier to grade them. Flake says, not so unless given special care. He's disagreeing with his boss here. This is one of those pages where you see, he, he said, no, that's not true. That, that's encouraging to me to remind me that even if I have the perfect building for grouping and grading people, I still have to work it to make it happen. It's not going to happen automatically. That's what this pretty much says in this paragraph, is it'll happen automatically if you have the perfect space. And Flake said, even if you got the perfect space, that's not true. You still have to work it. So a principle there is, you still have to work at it no matter what. So you got to keep that in mind. This is one more thing I found in Flake, in his notes that I found interesting. 
highly intellectual, religious, and uh, social groups become exclusive, narrow, and small. Think about that for me. Think about that statement. I'll get out of the way. How might you word that today? Worded the same way that it's worded right there. <laughs> um, that's a brutal statement. What we may say is groups that, that, that focus on content and religious practice and social elements eventually become um, extinct. Because they're not adding anybody body to the group, and by not adding, you eventually die. So they become functionally closed. Well, and how, and how much are you going to be able to teach highly intellectual people? Yeah. Because <laughs> they already know it all. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what he's saying is these folks should be teaching, but they won't do it. They, get, they come into this group. Yes. And they stay there. That's true. And all it does is by doing that, it stunts their growth. Not only as a group, but as individuals. They become exclusive in who they relate to. They become narrow in their scope, mm -hmm. and they become smaller and smaller and smaller. One of the ideas that he says is if you just leave them alone, eventually they'll die. You don't have to worry about it. Just, let it, just go around Because eventually they're going to take care of themselves without them even knowing it. They just will. So that's, by the way, this didn't get printed in his book. This didn't get printed. Now, this is the page that's probably the most important to me. Because it's been the most compelling. This is about evangelism through Sunday school. And there's something he says you should do here. And this is a practice we've lost. It's this one right here. He says every teacher should have a prayer list of all lost pupils and all who should belong to each class. Here's his idea. I teach my class of 50-year-olds. And I have a prayer list. And I do have a prayer list. I've got, a, I've got seven people that I'm praying for right now who I know are either unchurched or unaffiliated. Okay? Came out of my study of this. Of, of re-instituting re, uh, that practice. I've got seven names. Now, they're, they're, all of those seven people are people who I had a conversation with. Because that's one of the key things he says later on is that they need to be people who you've had a conversation with. You can't just, oh, I'm guessing that person's lost. It's, I'm going to go have a conversation with them, find out if they lost or not, then I add them to my list or not add them to my list. So I've had a conversation, at least one, with that, the folks on my list, and I know they're either unchurched, unaffiliated, have no idea who Christ is. So he's saying that every teacher should have a list. So I got my list. And I should pray for them every day. By name. And I should pray not just that God reaches into their life, but God uses me to reach into their life and help me find a way to do that. But not only should that be true for me, but every teacher in our church should have that same list. It should also be expanded to not just the people who I know, but on my list also should be the names of everybody in my group who they're praying for. Right now in front of the group I lead, I put that challenge in front of them and they're creating lists of people uh, who they've had conversations with, who they know are lost. Unchurched or unaffiliated is the term we're using right now. Um, and there's a date we've got, and they're going to start sharing those with me so I can pray with them. Okay? So 
His idea is that if you're doing that, then that would be the focus of what you're doing here. He also holds the idea that when you have worker training or worker meetings, your prayer time is not about who's in the hospital. It's about who are you praying for who should be in your class who's lost. Let's share names. So if we're like, like, like here's our, our weekly teacher meeting, instead of, a, hey, well, you, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, they're about to have surgery this week. Pastor, you need to know that. Uh, instead, Pastor, this is the person I'm praying for right now. I, I talked to them this last week, and uh, we had this conversation. I need you to pray with me that I can share more boldly with them. That's the focus of what his idea of the prayer this was. Here's a question that I have for us. If we took that practice and really did it with all of our Sunday school leaders, how would that change our churches? Think about that. I've been guilty of this too. Here comes our church prayer list. Our church, we get a prayer list from our church. And it has immediate needs, people serving in the military, um, then we have a list of people who are in the, either police officers or firemen or EMTs. We have that listed. Uh, then there's some other needs, and then there's some missionaries we're praying for. And the last thing on the list is folks who are who, who've been communicated with the staff that they they're lost and we're praying for them. What if that was flipped? And the first thing every every week on that prayer list was here's the names of people we're praying for who don't know Christ. Not that those other things aren't important. But understand, somebody having surgery, their eternal destiny doesn't depend on that. Shouldn't somebody's eternal destiny be listed first? That's what Flake's saying here. That's his idea. So when I'm coming to my prayer meeting, or come to, to my uh, uh, Sunday school leader meeting with the other Sunday school leaders, what we're sharing is who we're talking to about Christ. How would that change the culture of our churches? He also points to this. <laughs> He, his idea of annual Sunday school training was it was a week-long time and the focus of it was how to share the gospel with somebody. You did annual training not on how to teach or organize, but on how to share the gospel with somebody. That's what he was presenting to them. That was his idea. Because that elevates evangelism. Hey, I don't know how to talk. If you, if, if you did annual training then folks wouldn't have that excuse. Okay? So that that's a helpful tool for me to understand. This this over here on this page it has weekly workers meeting. This is kind of funny, kind of interesting to me. He had a schedule. He gave a schedule. <laughs> this is 615, you have lunch. I don't eat lunch at 615, but that's what he called it. It's free and it's served by the church. Then you had your leader meeting, you had a general conference, then you had department times. Um, then after that, you came back together and had prayer time. Here's this prayer time right here. That's where you, as a group, shared these are the people we're praying for who are lost. Okay. Then at 8 o'clock was the regular prayer meeting time. Okay. So the church came together at 8, but the workers have been together from 6.15 to 7.50 at 59. <laughs> The only people who ate the free meal in this, this plan were Sunday school leaders and their families. If somebody said, I want to get the free meal, sure, which class do you want to teach? <laughs> because part of this is these folks, these folks deserve that kind of treatment. 
They deserve perks that nobody else in the church should have. That's the principle behind this. They deserve the perks because your success and failure depends on them. They should be given that kind of attention. Uh, he talks about budget in one of the books and he point, pretty much says your largest thing should be on be in your budget. One of your largest things should be what you're investing in your leaders and showing them appreciation and value. And it's more than just here's here's a coffee mug we got you that's it's so ugly it's good looking. My wife and I went to one of those sculpture things or those those, those things where you paint the pots and stuff already made and I wanted to make a cup that would be so ugly nobody in my family would try to get it because then that way I would always know it's mine and it tastes the way I want it to taste. Because I don't clean my coffee cup. I just season it. Okay? And my wife will put it in the dishwasher and mess it all up. So I wanted to make one so ugly that there was no way anybody could confuse it. Well, you know, when you paint it with that paint, it looks ugly and then they fire it and, I, and it came out looking good. And so my other, other people in my family said, oh, I'll drink from that. No, 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 no. That one's seasoned. But they still do it. But he said, you give them something of value. Think about a weekly meal free for all your leaders. What the cost of that would be, but that's what he proposed. Show them that they're valuable. Show them that they're valuable. Does this communicate that you're valuable? This communicates that you're valuable. What happens to their children during that time? His idea was you took you had other folks who weren't involved in Sunday school taking care of their children so the kids and preschool leaders could be in this meeting. Does that make sense? Because that shows value to those preschool and children's workers. Because they need just as much training, maybe more so. I know this, we had training in our church last Saturday, so I marked that so I could be there for, to, for training. Um, I went to the preschool training, not the adult training. I'm fairly confident and comfortable teaching adults. But preschoolers still scare me even though I've been doing it for six years. They still scare me. So I went to preschool training all last Saturday from 8 o'clock till 1230. Because I needed that. Preschool and children workers, they need to keep being told what to do. Just as much as adult workers. And a lot of times we get the, we, these folks get left out because we need somebody to keep the kids, and we just let them do it again. Okay, and they know that, so we need to invest in them. That's a principle here. Now, those are the slides from that. I'm going to share with you some other things that made me start doing some more thinking. We think we live in a time when there's a lot of change. Okay, now look at this. Uh, we'll start with this one. Alexander Graham Bell, first telephone. 1876. Henry Ford, his first car, 1896. Okay, first car, 1896. The Wright brothers, first time to fly, 1903. All of these three things happened within 26 years of each other. Just one of these things would have changed society tremendously. Just a phone would have changed society. Or just a car, mass production of a car, or flight. All three of these things happened in a 26 year time period. We think change happened in our world today. This is change. This is change. So when we think that 
we're the only ones dealing with change? No, we're not. They did too. Now I share that because that's the backdrop of what Flake was, was against. You had all this change happening in culture. You also had change in how education was done. Sunday school began as a way to teach people, teach kids, two things. Number one, how to read, and number two, to obey the Ten Commandments. And employers were paying teachers to teach kids to obey the Ten Commandments. And here's why. Because if they knew to obey the Ten Commandments when they got old enough to be workers, then they might keep them and not steal from you. And that was the motivation behind it. That's why it was a paid thing. But education was starting to change. I wrote these numbers down so I didn't forget it. In 1870, every state in the Union at that time had at least one free elementary school in every, in every state. At least one in 1870. It didn't happen before 1870. They had, now most of them were in an urban area. But they had at least one free public school. In eight, uh, um, new laws were being put in place and that required compulsory school. Everybody had to go to school. Massachusetts was the first state to do that in 1852, and Mississippi was the last one in 19, I mean, in, 19, in 1897. Not 1997, 1897. Part of the reason it took Mississippi so long to do that was because they were still trying to, to figure out how they're going to pay for it after Reconstruction. So that's why they were, so it wasn't about them not caring about education. It just, the, the, the price tag on it, they were trying to figure out how to do it. So by the turn of the century, Education was changing because it was no longer private. It was now public, and it was being funded that way. So they began to ask the question, is Sunday school still got a place or not? Because Sunday school's purpose had been to teach kids how to read. So if that's being done now by the state, does Sunday school still have a place? That's the backdrop of where Flake is. So there's this change going on relative to Sunday school. Here's the change. It went from this to this. I know this is history. It went from literacy to evangelism. Big change. It went from a cause to a strategy. The cause was folks not being illiterate. The strategy was this is a way we can reach our communities. This is a shift that happened almost in a 20-year time period. It came, became something for children to something for all ages. Prior to this shift, <laughs> You treated adults like they were like you would at vacation Bible school. If if an adult shows up at vacation Bible school, today's world, they show up at vacation Bible school, and they're just hanging around, all of a sudden they're serving cookies and mixing Kool-Aid. You put them to work. If an adult showed up and stayed around at Sunday school in the early days, they became a teacher if they could read. And if they couldn't read, then they were given some other task to keep them busy because you didn't have adults in Bible study groups then. There's a shift and it all of a sudden became for all ages because then an adult could come and you start having adult groups. That didn't happen in the early days of Sunday school. This shift is all happening at this time. It moved from being paid to volunteer. You used to have all the teachers were paid to teach. They usually were school teachers during the week and they got paid on Sunday to work as well as extra income. That changed because when you start having all ages, you don't have enough people to do that. So it started being volunteer. It also moved from parachurch to being church-based. This is more important than you think. 
used to Sunday school was over here and churches were doing their thing over here. There was a competition between the two. And there was antagonism between the two. This shift happened as churches started realizing that this could be a strategy and started supporting Sunday school instead of fighting against it. Okay? That changed everything too in this whole context because now it's okay to volunteer. Prior to that, it wasn't because you were away from the church. You follow that? So this change is going on and it's setting up what Flake's about to do. Also in the same time, the same time you had some things going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. In, not, in 1899, the Southern Baptist Convention created the Committee on the New Century Movement. I went through, you know, there's, at the end of the Southern Baptist Convention, annual convention, they take all of the reports and notes and put them in this big annual. I went through and read these. It was exciting reading. And found all these things. They were getting ready for the new century. 1900. So they had these committees together. And they were working all this year. The convention in 1900 was unlike any other convention. They didn't have any business meetings on Sunday. They did worship all day Sunday to commemorate the 1900 year. But out of that came this idea, this one resolution that they emphasized training for all Sunday school leaders. Prior to 1900, there was no training for Sunday school leaders. You were a professional teacher, you supposedly already knew how to teach people. But the shift was happening where you had volunteers and you needed to train them. Baptist Sunday School Board then hired its first secretary in 1901, which is Dr. Spillman. <coughs> then they introduced the Convention Normal Series in 1908, which is a part of Dr. Spillman. 1902, you also had Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which was the first seminary. There was only one seminary then. They started having this lecture series about Sunday school. Prior to that, they had nothing in their curriculum about Sunday school leadership at, at any of our seminaries. But this initiative out of 1900 forced them to do that, and they started doing these books on how to lead Sunday school. Out of this, this, this thing became the, the education departments in the seminaries. It didn't exist until this initiative, and it's tied to the, to the, the, the 1900 Sunday Baptist Convention calling for training for leaders for Sunday school. 1909, Arthur Flate was added as a field worker and meant he traveled. 1913, you have the reprint of the 1908 book, which is what I showed you earlier. That's what Flake's got his notes in. And then in 1920, Arthur Flake became the first director of Sunday school. There's a little caveat here that you need to know about. Flake had been very influential in Mississippi as a leader of Sunday school. He established that he was, he, he was actually the president of their convention um, in 1901 of the, of the Mississippi Baptist Convention. And what he did was he was just a volunteer Sunday school director and they elected him as president of their convention because he was doing such a great job as a Sunday school person. Sunday school board hired him in 1909 and he sold his businesses. He had three businesses. He sold all his businesses and began to, to, to travel for Sunday School Board, Lifeway now. He got tired of traveling. I can understand that. So he went back on church staff in 1919. He went to First Baptist Church, Fort Worth. And his pastor was J. Frank Norris. Does anybody know who J. Frank Norris was? J. Frank Norris um, was he was the epitome of fundamentalism at that time. But he was also very difficult to, 
be around and work with. Um, he had a guy who came and threatened him in his office at his church, and he killed him before that guy was able to get his gun out because he had a gun strapped on the inside of his desk. That's J. Frank Norris. Arthur Flake went and worked it for him for six months. And, and Norris put him in charge of everything except the Sunday morning service and music. Here, fix these things. And then he would come and tell him what to do. He would micromanage it. Flake called Spillman and said, listen, you got to get me out of this. Is there any job you have open? No, we don't. We'll create one for you. So they did. And named him the first director of Sunday school. And he was able to leave First Baptist Fort Worth, Texas under J. Frank Norris and come and do that. So when he disagreed with Spillman, think about the dynamics. Not just his boss, but the one who got him out of the mess he had gone to in Fort Worth. So that give, this is kind because there's, there's this that's happening and it's starting this movement. It's toning everything up. There are other things in this book that haven't been printed. This page here is one of the more interesting pages to me because it, the question is, what's the fourfold test of a great Sunday school? Flake said it's these things. Reaching its possibilities, really teaching the Bible, winning the loss to Christ, enlisting training, and utilizing the church members. He never comments on what he means by number one. We don't know what he means by reach the possibilities. Really teaching the Bible, we know what he means by that. Winning the loss to Christ, we understand that. This is interesting because the focus here is not on much, not so much on you ministering to people, but you finding a way for people to serve because the idea was where you grow the most is when you're serving. So his idea, this was really his strategy for discipleship. How we disciple folks is we get them involved in a ministry somehow, whatever that ministry is, and they'll become disciples because they'll have to to be part of their, their growth process. You follow that? So this was his idea. This was his really approach. This has never been printed. You can't find it anywhere because we've been looking. None of this has been printed. But this helps me understand how he viewed discipling people. It's not by going to a class. It's by being involved in ministry. Part of that is because it motivates you to learn. It motivates you to learn. How do I strengthen my faith? I become involved in ministry. That's how I do it. Okay, I want you to think about these principles here <clears throat> that we've been looking at um, and why this is important. This also is something that's, that's important. What drove him to do this in the first place? This is never printed either. Um, all need it. All need to. This is a T. There's a T, Mister. Study Bible. I find great pleasure in knowing he had a typo in this book. <laughs> all need it. All need to study the Bible. People who do not go to Sunday school do not study the Bible. Think about that. People who do not go to Sunday school do not study the Bible. 1920, he's saying this. He didn't have any research. He just had experience. This affirms both personal Bible study and group Bible study. You need both of them. You need the group where you can talk and, and work out what you've been studying, but you need to do it individually because the group can't meet every day. And you've and you got to eat every day. I don't know about you, but I need to eat most days. Okay? There are some animals that's not true. They, they don't have to eat every day. 
Um, sharks don't have to eat it. They only have to eat like every 40 or 50 days. I can't remember which one it is. Camels can go 40 days without food. The most common way that believers are referred to in Scripture is sheep. Sheep have to eat every day to survive. It's the way they're made. The way a shepherd knows a sheep is sick is they aren't willing to eat that morning. That's the most common thing we're called of as believers, is sheep. We I need to eat every day. I thought it was sinners. Well, as an animal, <laughs> it's sheep. <laughs> all, need it, all need to study the Bible. He believed that. And that drove everything he was doing. Every person ought to study the Bible. No matter who they are. Oh, I don't believe the Bible. Well, have you read it? Why don't you be in my group and let's look at it together and find out. Find out if that's really what's wrong. I had a friend named Bubba uh, Clopton. Bubba's son accepted Christ. Bubba was upset about that. So he was going to go talk to his son because only weak men and women and children needed God. That was his view. And so Bubba decided, if I'm going to go talk to my son, I better read the Bible first so I know what he's showing where the problems are. So Bubba went and bought him a Bible, started reading it, and you know what happened while he was reading it? Yes. He found how weak he was. Yeah, he found out, this is a pretty clear picture of me. He went in his backyard, he had a big fence, went by a post and prayed at that post, God, if this is real, then you've got to bring somebody in my life to help me understand it. Then he left that post and went to eat lunch. When he got to lunch, he got to the cafe, it was full. There was one chair open. And Hey, do you mind if I join you at this table? It was the pastor of the church, First Baptist Church in that town, the head of the deacons, and the Sunday school director having lunch, and that's who he ended up sitting with that day. He had just prayed, if this is true, you've got to send me some way to help me understand this. And that was the only seat available in that cafeteria, and that's where I sit. Um, Bubba accepted Christ and became a fifth grade Sunday school teacher. He taught out of that Bible. Um, that fence got torn down except for that one pole. That's why all need to study the Bible. Remember, Bubba said, this is a bunch of malarkey. But he could say that because he hadn't read it. Once you read it, then it's different. Okay? So that's what they believe. How do you explain the fact that most Christians haven't read the Bible? It frustrates me. Um, I forget what the percentage is. But it's amazingly small. Less than fifteen percent of professing Christians read, the read their Bible on a daily basis. Yeah. You know how much? How, this is done. This is a study on the evangelical believers. Yeah. This is a study on evangelical believers. So these are church-going people. The, the number I'm about to give you. How many minutes a week do you think uh, the church-going person says that they read their Bible? Or engage with it somehow. And that would include them being in Bible study groups. Church going. Yeah, church going people. Wish. You're not counting Sunday school time, right? I am counting Sunday school time. Ten minutes. Seventeen is what the research says. Minutes. And where they're actually opening up their Bible and reading it. Which that tells you a lot about the kind of classes they go to because they're lecture, you don't have to even open the Bible. 
But how many people come to church without a Bible? Oh, yeah. And today it's hard you to know, monitor I'm a, I'm that. A, I'm a retired cop. I never went to work without my gun. Sure. <laughs> never. And I said, today there's no excuse for not having a Bible because you got it on your phone. Exactly. I don't trust that. I mean, I got Yeah, it, I understand. But if I'm going to study... I'm going to study... Well, there's other things too. If, I, if I'm going to study, i got to do it I gotta, in print. Right. Because my brain works different when it's, it's not like in print. tithing. I can't... Do it through the cash yeah. thing that yeah. we got. If you don't put that as a leader, and I tell the folks this, as a leader, if you're telling your congregation you need to be tight, you need to be putting that envelope in that prayer every. And I, I write four checks. I'm still using checks that I bought. Y'all know what a check is, by the way. It's a piece of paper. <laughs> And you get money for it. Uh, but I, you know, first of the month, I get paid. I'm retired. I get paid on first of the month. I write four checks and I put them in the envelope and I date them. And then each Sunday, I put that in. I want the congregation to see me because I am setting the example I want for my congregation. Let me, let me tell you, there's a story about why, to me, this is so important for us to think about. Everybody else study the Bible. Um, some of you already know this, but my dad passed away in June, June 7th. He found out on the 10th of, uh, 1st of May he had cancer, and six weeks later he was dead. Um, my dad um, grew up in a non-Christian home. Okay, his, his mom moved out and dad moved out right behind her at, at age 17 because she was being abused, and he moved out with her. And he dropped out of high school, went to work. And he worked 60 years in the same business selling auto parts at two different auto parts stores. He was at one store, that one went under, he moved to another one, and what's funny is the guy he used to work for came to him to buy his parts at the new store. Okay? My dad has read two books, had read two books his whole life. Now he read all kinds of magazines about cars. Okay? The amount of knowledge he knew about that stuff, I, I could call him and say, Dad, my car is sound like this, and he hold up the phone. Well, let me tell you what's going on. And he would be right. I can't do that. I wish I could. I can't. Dad read two books. Never finished high school. Never finished high school. <laughs> Book one, believe it or not, is Chuck Norris's autobiography. <laughs> My dad loved Walker, Texas Ranger. <laughs> any Chuck Norris movie he watched, because Chuck, and he, he, he would tell you, if Chuck won't fool with it, you shouldn't either. <laughs> the other book he read cover to cover was his Bible. Um, that's somebody who never graduated from high school. But that's the wisest man I ever knew. Um, he didn't read. Except just those two books. He probably got a lot more wisdom out of the second one than he did the first Okay? But it's that important. How Dad got involved in Sunday school was Dad was terrified of being asked to read. Terrified of it. Um, and there was a man who was going to start a new Sunday school class. And he went to my dad and said, Listen, you can come be my Sunday school class. I promise not to ask you to read. You, you promise me that, Sonny? I promise you. I won't ever ask you to read. Dad thought, I'll give him a try. If he ever asked me, I'm done. So Dad went. Now, Dad was a believer at that point. 
So Dad started going to Sonny's Sunday school class. Sonny never asked Dad to read. Okay? Um, but Sonny, when he got a class a certain size, Sonny would go start a new class. And who he would take with him to start the new class was my dad and my mom. Because Dad couldn't read and didn't want to read in public. But he worked in a depart uh, apartment store. A, a, a car park store, and he encountered how many people every day. So why Sonny wanted Dad to go <laughs> would be because Sonny knew that Dad would bring those customers with him. And they would get involved in that class. They could build a class, get it to a certain point. They'd move on, and then Dad would help him build another class. Um, but that's how Dad got involved in Sunday school. Dad wasn't asked to read it in that group, but he read it outside that group religiously. And it made a difference in my dad. Mm -hmm. It's important for us to keep that passion in mind. Mm -hmm. Everybody ought to at least have the chance to study it. And that drove Flake. That was more important than anything else, which is why I don't think he cared how his formula got laid out. Because he just wanted to know, are you getting people involved in Bible study who've never read the Bible? That's it. Are you doing it? I don't care about all the mechanics. Are you getting them in there? Because he believed it was that important. He also had this idea. This is about grouping, all that kind of stuff. He wrote that you do this not because of mental attainment, but because of spiritual need. He pointed to two things a little bit later on in these notes about spiritual need. Number one is people learn differently. I teach 50-year-olds and I teach 3-year-olds. What I do with the 3-year-olds is a little different than what I do with the 50-year-olds. Typically. <laughs> I have to use shorter sentences and smaller words with my 50-year-olds. <laughs> but they have different spiritual needs. My 50-year-olds are at a different place in their life, so their spiritual needs are a little different. Those three-year-olds have a... They're trying to figure it all... I mean, they don't, they're just now figuring out that Jesus loves them. So it's a different spiritual foundation. So you have to keep that in mind that people learn differently at different points in their life, and their spiritual needs are different. So you group with that in mind. You also group with the idea that you're trying to create room for people who aren't in the group. Because if there's a chair that's not empty, they're not going to come in there. They're going to leave. If, we, if this was how I was teaching on Sunday, I would not be where I am right now in this room. I'd be against that wall. Somehow I'd figure out I'd be in that wall. Having that marker board and that marker board on those walls are the worst thing in this room. Because if you close this, then what you're going to have to do, if this is closed, then that means everybody's facing that. There's the door. Who's going to be the last one there? It's going to be guests. Especially if they got kids, because they got to go get their kids checked in, and then they're going to find the adult class. So they're going to come, and, and you've already started, and you're standing right there. Are they going to walk in that door? But if that marker board was on this side, it was right here, you're here, they can slip in, as long as there's two chairs empty right there. Same thing on this end. If I'm on this end, they can slip in and it disturb the group. you got to think that way. And that's what he's talking about with this. 
is you've got to group yourself and organize yourself so that there's room for lost people to be a part of the group. Deals with size, all those kinds of things. Y'all following me? It's important for us to think about that. Here's some things that, that need to be known. Back then, they were always looking. These are insights we gained. I got 15 minutes. They were always looking for more workers. I'm so glad I'm not in that time period where I was always looking for more. <laughs> Has that really changed today, though? Nope. <laughs> you still got 20% done 80% of the work. They had teachers who guarded their class members and fought the starting of new groups. That's different from the day, isn't it? <laughs> they heard irrational excuses. People won't leave, or people will leave if you start new groups. You won't have space. We've tried that before. It will not work here. We don't hear any of those today. <laughs> they also had detractors and critics. This was interesting to study. They were, there were a lot of folks who were asking the Sunday School Still Brotherhood. And there were some folks saying it's already past its time. And this, this was before it's even had its greatest moments. They were saying Sunday School is dead in 1900. There were social prejudices. Oh, that Bible study group. Oh, well, we might have somebody who's in that group who comes to our church. We don't know that we're free to do that. Some of that was racial. Some of it was gender. There were education practices that were questioned. Um, our current, you know, discovery learning and those kinds of things. It was something new in 1900. And there were a lot of folks who were saying, you can't. That, that's just an issue. One of the more interesting things that happened here is there were questions about leaders being qualified who were volunteers. And the people who were screaming about this were seminary presidents. Why on, I mean, here's, the, here's the statement. That would be great to have those Bible study groups as long as the people you have are really qualified with Bible knowledge. And the best way to do that is be seminary trained. And so they were raising questions about the validity of Sunday school because it was volunteer-based still happens today still happens today nothing new they faced that there were theological concerns oh man the role of women was an issue here because without women Sunday school don't happen <laughs> and there were some folks who had major difficulties here also in the same concern was the idea that Bible study is for everybody well, what are, are you providing Bible study for those who aren't of the elect? Uh -huh. And so you had the issue of Calvinism and, pre, and all that stuff here. <laughs> and that's 1900. You had folks questioning Sunday school being for all people. Because why would you do, do Sunday school for all people when some of those folks aren't in the elect? That almost goes back to the Pharisee days. It, it does. <laughs> but you had that question going on here. Well, not only is Bible, I mean, the Sunday school for everybody, so is teaching it. Yeah. Because Jesus says, if you do what I ask you to do, I'll provide what you need. Sure. So you had this, so there's this theological issue. You also have the theological issue of children being separated from their parents. A famous pastor, I'm not going to say his name because y'all know Charles Spurgeon, <laughs> made this statement. And this was at a Sunday school convention. I'm impressed with what y'all do for children whose parents are not involved in their spiritual lives. Sunday school is a great place for kids who have no spiritual training at home. But those of you who have, are parents who have spiritual depth and understanding, you shouldn't depend on the church to train your children. What he's really saying is Sunday school is only for people 
whose parents aren't interested in them. But if you are a parent who's interested in your kid, you shouldn't take them to Sunday school. They should be, you're the ones responsible for discipling them. Don't depend on the church. Don't even put them in a Sunday school. That's what he's really saying. Spurgeon said that. You see any problems with that? I mean, what he's saying is you don't need any help doing it. And we do. And we do. I mean, I, my kids are grown, but not because of me. Because of some great science school teachers they have. Mm-hmm. I need that partnership. That goes well, to this what person. It, is, it takes a. How is it, what's the saying? It takes a village to raise a child. But Spurgeon was against it for theological reasons. But that also points to some personal interest. Here's what was happening. If those kids came to church with their parents, they got counted in their attendance numbers. <laughs> and the parents had the money too. Yeah. And so it made them feel better. And one of the things that happened is early on they decided only to count Sunday school enrollment and not count worship attendance. Because what you had in the 1900s, you had some folks who were concerned because Sunday school had more in attendance than worship. And so so what they did to eliminate that conversation is they just didn't count how many is in worship. But how many people, and, and I see this in my church, uh, uh, and I've seen it in others, they'll come to the service but won't go to Sunday school. Well, we need to send them there. That's a whole other story. You invite them, but you know, yeah. uh, that's not. That's, it's all kinds of things. That's that not for me. But this, this, is ha- this was happening. Understand, in Southern Baptist life, in 19, before 1984, on the annual record, we did not ask for number of people in worship for that very reason. But in 1984, that changed, and we began to ask, how many folks do you have in worship? And you began to see a shift where, because Sunday school at that point had more in Sunday school than you did in worship, and you begin to see a shift where that happened because not everybody's comfortable with that idea. Okay? That's just history. That's just a fact. That's why it was not, that's why it was not put on... Uh, to eliminate that, that debate, they just didn't track it. But now that's not the case. Okay? So you had those same things happen. But here's what here's the here's the good news. Is it is it its greatest what happened? Its greatest days came back because they believed in these things. They believed people have a spiritual need that only God can lead. That was their number one belief. They believed God's word changes lives. And they believed everyone ought to study Bible in a group and individually. Because you didn't do it as a group, you're not going to do it individually. But you need to study individually to be a part of the group. Those work together. Prayer makes a difference. Praying for lost people. Every believer ought to serve in their local church. It's important. And local churches are to intentionally seek to reach everyone in their community. Those are the principles that they have. From all these notes, this is boiling it out. Here's the way I would sum up what they believed. Everyone needs to study the Bible in a group and as individuals because everyone has spiritual needs that only God, that only the God of the Bible can meet. And that belief drove everything they did. And here's the practices because of that. Or this process. All right, good. You identify the names of people not in a Bible study group. Now they did that through prayer cards. I have my prayer list. Everybody in my class has a prayer list. Those are the potential people for us to meet, us to live, uh, involve. I'm going to pray for these people by name every day. I'm praying for those people every day. And then I create new open groups based on who I'm praying for. So 
I can, I can, here's my class. We're going to pretend this is my class. And we've got, I don't know how many in here. How many? One, two, zero. We'll say 15. All of us are praying for three people. Let's just say we're doing that. 15 of us are praying for three people each. So that's how many people? 45. 45. So the idea then would be we've got this list of 45 people we've been praying for for weeks. Every day. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at that list, we're going to put it all together, and we're going to target a Sunday, and we're going to try to invite all 45 of those people we're praying for. Okay? Um, and we're going to still be in this same room. Only problem is this room only holds 25 people. So what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to create two groups that week. So me as a teacher, I'm going to go create, I'm going to mentor somebody else in the group, and you're going to lead the normal group, and I'm going to start this other group, people will come over here with me, and we're going to try to invite all 45 people. Statistics say, and this is still true, if you invite people to be a part of a Bible study group, and you, with this caveat, hey, I've got a Bible study group I'm a part of, I'll be happy to come by and pick you up and you can go with me. Or you can just follow me in your car. Statistics say if you do that, about 80% will say yes. If it's that approach, you go with me to do Bible study. I'll sh I, I don't know everything, but we're learning stuff in this group. If you'll go with me, I'll come pick you up. Or you just follow, I'll come by your house and you follow me. 80% say they'll go. So if 80% of our 45 agree, okay, now remember, we've got our 15 plus those 45. So 80% of those 45 would be around 30. So now we've got 45 because it's 15 plus our 30 who come, but we got to have two rooms. That's his idea. You're inviting people you've been praying for for months to come to that new Bible study group. And then you, you're inviting the people you know by name and then you got to start new groups to accommodate them because we can't fit in that room. And they're not going to come in a room where they're crowded. I'm not going to go to a room I'm crowded in either. Okay? Then you let the Holy Spirit do what only He can do, and then you start all over again. Because you know who knows lost people? Lost people do. So when they accept Christ, one of the first things you do is say, you know, let me tell you what happened. Our class was praying for you for nine months, and we prayed that you would, you would come and be a part of Bible study group and learn what we did, and you've done that. We're thankful that God worked that way. Who do you know that you could put on this that you could start praying for and maybe in the next nine months you can talk to them about being a Bible study group? Newly born again Christians are just like people who just quit smoking. That's right. They can't talk about it enough. That's right. Go ahead and help them. And now what you've got is you've got a list of more lost people. And it's not that, hey, we're going to start a new group. We're going to start a new group for that group of people. That's who we're starting that group for. Okay? These are the principles that Flake was espousing. That's what he was trying to help others understand. I think these things still work today in the same process. If I've been praying for somebody for nine months, and then I decided, you know, I don't know, I don't know if, they, if I invite them, they come. What I've really said is I don't, either I'm not a good praying or God's not good at answering. Okay? What it does, because this has happened, I started started praying for this list of seven uh, in, right after I found this. My list. Two minutes. Um, I've got more on the list now. 
and become more and more aware of people who don't know Christ. It's made me much more sensitive again. I used to be. I quit doing that practice, and now it's made me sensitive again. After my dad's death, um, I got to talk personally within a month to four of those people on that list. And my wife talked to a fifth one. And there's two I still haven't been able to talk, have that conversation with on my prayer list. Uh, another conversation. That changed how I view my father's death. It opened the door for me to share with them about Christ in a different way. But I've been praying for that opportunity since August of last year. That makes sense? Um, when I'm around those people, it changed how I respond to them. Now, I'm not trying to shove it down their throat. I'm just trying to be a good friend, and good friends make sure they don't go to hell. And that's what I'm trying to do, and I'm praying for those opportunities. A couple of them are family members. Okay, a couple of them are family members. And that's important, but this is the process that he has. There's some important things for us to learn from somebody who's wrote these a hundred years ago at this point in history. Because people haven't changed. The excuses are still the same. So the principles are still the same too. Comments, questions, statements. Are y'all going to publish this? <laughs> um, yes. Here's what's happened. We began to research because we knew it would be the 100th anniversary of Flake. So we wanted to look at it to see what it said. And there's a book that will be available. The manuscript, I just got a, I wrote one chapter. I wrote a chapter about what I, basically this stuff. Um, and then there's another chapter on each one of the five, five parts of the, of the formula. Um, and Alan Taylor's editing it. He's the general editor of it. Um, that book, the manuscript is, is being reviewed right now. And it'll be a hardback book either in December or February. Don't know which. So part of this content is in that. Uh, the annual book that Lifeway does, <coughs> it looks like this. This one is the one that for, for this past year comes out December 1. This is Saddle Up, um, which I used the other three sessions. Um, we've been doing those now for 15 years. The book that's coming this December 1 of this year is, in, is entitled, It Begins with Prayer. It looks at the role prayer plays in evangelism, the role prayer plays in um, community, <coughs> developing community, and the role prayer plays in service. Um, and, and out of this, I was able to be the one that wrote it. And I say that with all humility. I really do. Because I can't believe I got to do it. It'll be out December 1, and much of the content I share with you is in there. That makes sense? The manuscript right now is in the editor's hands. But will it include his handwritten? Don't know that yet. We are looking at how we, how we, how we, how we uh, provide that. Um, and, and part of it is getting families permission to do so. We've, we're close at that point. I want to read this one quote to close this up, if I can read it. Here it is. Uh, the name of every man, woman, and child in the community who is a stranger to grace should be in the possession of the church and the pastor. Amen. It is very much easier 
to become intentionally concerned about the salvation of the souls of people when you know them personally, who they are, and where they live. Billy Smith may be one of a hundred lost people in the community. However, the chances of winning Billy Smith to Christ are multiplied a hundredfold when we have his name, his address, and know from his own testimony that he is a lost man. That was Flake in a different book. That's a compelling thing for me. And that's what he's really talking about in all this. We're trying to get to the point of having all of it in some kind of format. Thank you for your time. I know this was academic in some ways, but I needed this needed to share it so that we could get to those points because it's just there's just no way to do it otherwise. Okay? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.